The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, your word is open before us. Now open our hearts and minds, our very souls, to the preaching of your word. Let your spirit fill us with your word and have your way with us, that we might know you and the power of your work in us, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, it's a very dark passage, a dark passage to reflect on, on in a Christmas season. But because of that, because of what God did, there, is, there truly is no such thing as celebrating Christmas too much. Get your mind wrapped around what happened and what God did and you can't celebrate too much the incarnation, the sending of God's Son. When one considers the darkness that the world was in prior to this gospel's light, sentimentalizing Christmas as just good feelings for good people, good memories with good wishes for all, really grows stale, surfacy, if that's all it is. If we ignore the sin and the misery that is the human race, outside of life that was brought forth from this little baby laid in manger. That is why a multitude of angels, terrifying in the sight of men. Don't forget that when we sing angels, we have heard on high, we are singing of this majestic multitude, thousand, a thousand thousands of angels gathered closely around these shepherds, and they are afraid. They are afraid. And they cry out, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The angels knew that what was happening was universe riveting. Was riveting over all of time and all of space. And they sang of it. The story of the fall of man in Genesis 3 is the story about you. It's a story about ourselves. And it's a story about the world. It is the reason that the world needs Christmas. And it is the reason... The world, left to itself, hates Christmas. Genesis 3 is the reason why you need Christmas, why the world needs Christmas, and why the world hates Christmas. 
We're going to take a look at some origins that come out here. This first origin, the origin of creation, where does all creation come from, is, of course, all of Genesis 1 and 2. Glorious chapters, wonderful chapters to read. Read these chapters as though for the first time. And see the goodness, the goodness of creation. Day after day after day, the Lord says, and he saw what he did, judging what he did, and he called it good. And at the end of it all, he calls it very good. Do you see all of creation and see it as good and very good? Do you look around and see what God has done and see it as good? Open your eyes again. Open your eyes again and see what God has done. The splendor of God's imaginative hands and the invitation for mankind created in his image, male and female, to enjoy and participate in the wonder, the adventure, the proliferation, the dominion and rule, the poetry and song, the romance and relationships of this created universe. Here's a garden. God says, care for it. Here are creatures, name them, study them, rule over them. Here are rivers, go down them, explore, discover, and make things from what you find. Here are stars, they'll mark your way and time. Here's a woman, make love and make a family and then a kingdom. And so the glorious origin and creation. And our first parents ruined it. Ruined it. And through them, we ruined it with them. God places Adam and Eve in a place of testing, having provided them with everything that they needed to succeed. His word law. His, his law explaining to them exactly what they needed to do. Exactly what they needed to do. Look back on chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in, that, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent, chapter 3, verse 1, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's he doing? What is this cunning serpent doing? He is Satan. We know, we know that the serpent is Satan. If you compare the words of serpent and dragon and then hear of the dragon in Revelation that was in the garden, we are told, this is Satan who has come. And he, in all of his cunning and deception, comes to the woman with subtle lies, subtle lies formed as questions. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Is, is that what he said? leading her into this discussion. He causes Eve to begin to question God's goodness. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said, no, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Serpent says, you will not surely die. God has something for you. God has, there, there's something more than what God has for you out there. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. With these subtle lies, he begins to question or cause Eve to question, is God really good? Is God really as good as he could be? Hmm. And then he calls Eve's contentment into question while calling God a liar. You will not die. What do you mean God said you will die? You will not. 
And the day you eat of it, you'll be like God. Wouldn't you like to be like God? You're not content where you are right now, are you? God is not completely good, is he? Come with me. I can show you contentment. I can give you fulfillment far more than, all, than, than what God has given you. I want you to notice this. God attacks our beliefs before he attacks our actions. I'm sorry, the devil, not God. The devil attacks our beliefs before he attacks our actions. What you believe is so important because how you live, how you act, flows out of what you believe. Your actions flow out of what you believe about the universe, about the world in which you live, about the God or the idol that you serve, about your circumstances, about where all of your story is going. Your actions flow out of what you believe. The serpent deceives and questions. Our doctrine, you can think of your doctrine, what you believe is a fortress. A fortress around the decisions that we make to act in one way or in another. You can eat of any tree of the garden that you would like. There's the fortress, but of the tree that's in the center of the garden, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. There's the fortress. And within that fortress, believing that, there is life and glory and goodness because God is so good. But the fortress is there to protect us, to guide us, to lead us. And out of that, living within that fortress is like living within the belief structure that you have. Believe something different and you'll act differently. Our actions flow from what we believe. So verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Well, duh, everything God had made in the garden was good. There's, there's nothing new about that statement. She looks and she sees that, that, that the fruit on the tree is good. Well, everything was good. God had already said so. Chapter 1, verse 31. When God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. She saw that it was good and that it was pleasing and that it could grant her more. So she took and ate in disbelief of God's other words. So she believed some of what God said. Yeah, it is good. God's right. It's good. But I'm not going to, I'm going to believe this part of God's doctrine. I'm not going to believe the other part. Do you see that? I'm going to take and pick and choose what I believe to be right and good and true. If God said it, that's really helpful. And I'm going to pick and choose what I believe. I'm going to listen to the deceit, to the cunning. I want to go down here and see for myself. Then she gives to her husband, who should have been there protecting her wife from the serpent, and then he ate. Another story to work through at some point. She had eaten and hadn't died. I think that's part of what, uh, what he is doing in his abdication. Eh, I'll let her take it. See what happens. She didn't die. And he let her be the experiment. And in that moment, when he takes and eats, in the moment that Adam takes and eats, because he was the head of the human race, the human race fell. We all covenantally fell. The entire human race fell into death and misery with Adam. 
Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We all became sinners by nature when our federal head became a sinner. When he sinned and fell into sin and misery, when he fell into that bondage, he, he threw all of the human race into that bondage as well. But while, and, and while Adam and Eve did not die physically, yet immediately that we became a race that was spiritually dead and condemned. Ephesians 2.1, you, speaking to the Gentiles, Paul writes, were dead in trespasses and sins in the way that you once walked. We're like dead men walking. We're like zombies. We're spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead, separated from God in, in this nature, but we continue to live in that particular separated nature, determining for ourselves what is right and wrong, developing our own moral systems. Well, but, but they didn't die right away. So, so what's going on? We have this, now, this race before us, which is full of sin and rebellion, and it's twisted in, we have, we have now this twisted nature all the way back in conception. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And this sin is not just David, David's not just speaking of himself, he's speaking of a universal problem. None of us, none of us are born without the stain of sin. None of us are conceived without the stain of sin in that nature already. Romans 3, 11 and 12, there's none who understands, there's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. In Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. That's who we are. That's what we do. Because of what we believe, because of what our parents believed, we believe, because of what our parents did, we do. We are generally, frankly, we're generally quite comfortable with much of our sin because of this. And we develop all kinds of systemic sin problems in families, in cultures, and in societies. We get very used to a number of habitual kinds of sins that we say we're going to live in. We're going to call this okay. These are sometimes a lot easier to see in other cultures' systemic sin problems like chattel slavery. Or widow burnings that you find in, uh, in India and in, amongst certain religions. It's easy to see in those other, oh, I see their problems. I see the systemic sin, the, the way that their false belief leads to these terrible, terrible actions. And we miss the ones that are right here in our culture. Like abortion or transgender mutilations. We begin to call these things good. But in all of this, in all of this, we remain moral agents because we've been made in God's image. Part of what it means to be having been made in God's image is that you have moral capabilities. You have the ability to make a choice, a moral choice, independent as a free agent, and then bear the responsibility of those decisions. We are responsible before God for our own actions and decisions. But we hate that. <laughs> we hate that, and we try to do the very same thing that Adam and Eve did. What they did next. Blame. 
Hide and then blame, actually. Original blame. Look again, verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, hiding themselves, and made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Their eyes are open, and what they saw was true, but now how they saw it was through eyes of shame. Verse 8, God comes to them, and there are hints of the triune God even here. Um, even here, when it says they came in the cool of the day, really could be the, the spirit of the day. The, the day when the spirit would come in great judgment, would come um, in, in, in a whirlwind of judgment. Other passages use this Hebrew, Hebrew phrase in that kind of way. Um, so he comes in this, in this particular time of day to judge. Verse 22, for instance, also at the end of chapter 3, we see, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. There's already hints of the different persons. God, who then speaks the word, and the spirit who is there judging, are all present in the midst of this. And in verse 9, we hear, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Um, he's not asking uh, as though he doesn't know where Adam is. God is omniscient all-knowing. He, he's not asking, where are you? He's asking like a courtroom scene. So a courtroom scene has begun, and Adam is being, um, is, is being questioned. Where are you? Well, I'm, I'm here. I, I covered myself. I'm, I'm hiding. Why? Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? So you should see this, this interaction taking place as a, a courtroom scene, a testimony that is being given, um, questions that are being asked to determine the, the, the true guilt. What does Adam do as he's on the stand? Well, he tries to point the blame somewhere else. So, like anyone who has shame and has hid and wants to stay hidden from any moral responsibility, Adam shifts the blame somewhere other than himself. Let me tell you how the story really went, God. L let's get the facts straight here. You will recall that you are the one that gave me the woman. And she's the one who gave me the fruit. Like I was just standing here in this perfect place. All things were going just fine. And look what you did and look what she did. I rest my case. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so silly, so laughable that God doesn't even say anything. <laughs> That, that's all you have to say for yourself, son. So he turns to the woman. He turns to the woman and he says, he says to her, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, well, I was tricked. It, it, was, it was a liar. He made it seem so right and so good. I shouldn't be blamed. I, I was tricked. I was deceived. And it's as though the judge then says, I rest my case. This is the blame game. This is the blame game that we all play. This, is, this shows how we are all sinners by nature. This is what we do. We, we all play it because blame comes because we can't hide anymore. And then hiding comes, first of all, because of the shame. So we're full of shame. We hide. When we're found out, we blame. It's a pattern we all follow. We hate what we did. We hide what we do, did, and then when we're found out, we blame anyone or anything else 
when there's an attempt to bring it out in the light. There's always another story. There's always another side that I want to give. There's always some justification that I should be able to give. It's the way I was brought up. It's, it's because of our people. That's the way we are. It's, it's because of I didn't have enough. I got too much. Fill in the blank. Let me tell you all the reasons why I am doing these things, which I was hiding because I was full of shame. But now that it's been found out, I got to make some excuses for it. That's what we do. That's who we are. We always blame others. We always blame the circumstances. We always blame the deceiver. We refuse to take responsibility for our own sin. And God says that the wages of sin, what we earn for sin, is death. But, but we think differently. We think, we think we have not been given this, this uh, declaration of guilt. Uh, we haven't been declared guilty yet, and the sentence hasn't been passed yet. And there's still things that we could do. We can make it better. We, there's a lot, a lot of good works I can still do here. There's... There's a, another, there's a, oh, oh, we can redefine what's going on. We'll, we'll call it free love, not fornication. We'll, we'll call it social justice, not envy. Or our good works will just pile on more and more good works, like the fresh new fallen snow over the dunghill. Doesn't it look so much nicer now? If we succeed in doing these things, what happens is we continue on and our shame is not taken care of. We get away with it out there. We get away with it in the families. We get away with it in the cultures. We get away with it. But we know the shame. And we hide. And we justify. Even to ourselves. Over and over and over again. So we have original sin. We have original blame. What's also in this passage is original mercy. It's right there. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we know that our own personal death is coming as well. We know that that day of death is coming. The days are ticking. You are one day closer to the day that you are going to die than you were yesterday. It's just ticking right along. But Adam and Eve, they didn't die in that day. They didn't physically die in that day. And them not dying in that day physically is the mercy of God. Instead, there was a hint right then of what would be called Christmas Day in Calvary. In the resurrection, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We see throughout the New Testament this verse pointed, uh, pointed back to as a prophecy of one who would come from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and who would take care of our sin problem, who would take responsibility for our sin in a way we never would and never could. And, and in this fallen world, in this fallen world of blame and hiding, in this fallen world of shame, mercy hunts 
after the fallen. Mercy is a hound hunting after fallen man. Think about it. Think about this for a second. The only reason any of us is here is because of God's merciful stay of his judgment. The story could have gone, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God pronounced the judgment, they died, that's it. God would have been completely glorified in all of his justice. And that would have been it. That's it for the human race. But he gave Adam and Eve time. He gave Adam and Eve time to have kids. Time for you to be born. You're alive here right now in this room this morning because God had mercy on Adam and Eve and allowed the beginning of the human race to flourish and cover the earth. Huh. And time as well to send through that line one who would be the new covenant head of a new covenant race. One who would be without sin and yet, and yet born of a woman. Not conceived in sin. One who would come and be a second Adam. A new head for a new race. One in whom would be able to take then the judgment of God, the just righteous judgment of God in death. The full wrath of God poured out upon him. He would be able to take it upon himself representing all of his in the same way that the first Adam took and represented us in the great fall. This one would take responsibility for his bride when the first Adam would not take responsibility for his bride. And this one would not listen to the lies of the serpent. The mercy of God pursues fallen man. The mercy of God pursues you. The mercy of God pursues his enemies. Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 136, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his, he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Luke 154, this is the song of Mary, her Magnificat, as she, as she delights in what God has, is doing. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Do you hear that? So she's singing, and she's, she's singing about the, the gift of the child that she is carrying, and she is hearkening back. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, the mercy that he began back in the garden with the first parents. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We've seen this in Gospel of John. Why did not Jesus not come to, to condemn the world? Because the world was already condemned, but instead to save the world. Mercy. Mercy. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, the author of all mercy, you should sense the hounds of heaven. The voices of mercy tracking you down. They are coming for you. It is coming for you. He is coming for you. And yet, there you are, hiding in your shame. You look as silly as a naked man trying to cover himself with a couple of fig leaves. And then hide from Almighty God. 
I mean, come on. Where are you? What are you doing hiding from me, God would say. And the hounds of mercy bark. Maybe bark you up a tree somewhere. You hide in your shame. You hide in your shame because of two killer instincts that your first parents passed on to you. These are instincts that are in the nature of a fallen man and woman. These are, the, these are natural instincts in our fallenness. And the two instincts are this. Do not believe God is good, number one. Do not believe God is good. Number two, believe that contentment and fulfillment require the twisting and then finally ignoring of God's word. They are built into your system, in your nature. That is how you begin in that fallen state. I mean, think about this. How could eating a piece of fruit, such a small thing, cast the whole world into such misery? It's just a piece of fruit. What's going on? Well, what's going on is the two serpents' instincts, born of the serpent's cunning lies, are placed deep into fallen man covenantally when he does this. Do not believe God is good. He doesn't have your best interests. You could make a better world. Number two, believe that contentment requires twisting and ignoring God's word. I will be more fulfilled if instead of following God, who says that I should do thus, I do something different. I will be more fulfilled if I do these things. Those two lies of the serpent are what are built into our system. And there it is those two lies that drive the world into all the misery that this world is in. Every miserable moment, every miserable point, every terrible event that has ever taken place on this earth is because we believed those two lies. We followed those two instincts. God is not good. We got to do this ourselves. We can do it better. And number two, he'll never make me content. I will never be content unless I add or change or twist in this particular direction. This is what he says to us. The pitched battle, the pitched battle every day is not over doing the right thing. That's not where it begins. It is first over believing the right thing. You do based on what you believe. You act out of your beliefs. So, so, when you argue that your life circumstances are proof that God is not good, you are simply falling to the temptation that is as old as the garden. And we still fall for it. And when it seems as though everyone else around you, including God and his word, are wrong, stupid, and only you are right and righteous. I know it's right for me. You're probably in the downward drain of shame, hide, and blame. And you will live a miserable life in that sewer of lies. From original creation to original sin to original blame comes God's original mercy. Adam and Eve could not undo what they had done. There was no way, and neither can you or me or anyone else. And that is why we need Christmas. That is why the world needs Christmas. The fulfillment of God's promise of everlasting mercy came that night, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. And so we sing glory to God in the highest. 
You cannot, you cannot over-celebrate Christmas. So Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, we're about to enter into the celebration of the most glorious act of mercy imaginable, the gift of your Son, Jesus, made flesh, entering into humanity and history to be mercy, to be tangible grace, to offer us the only way out of our shame, the only way out of our hiding, the only way out of our sin and our condemnation, the only way out of eternal death. Oh, Father, this world needs Christmas, and each one here needs the gift of Christmas. Not the day, not the tinsel. This world needs to know and respond in faith to you, to your truth, to your Son, to why you sent him, to what he has done, to where he reigns now, to the work of your Spirit among us. Oh, praise your most holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.